Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Drops. I'll call back if it does. Love Talk Radio. And hello out there to all you Brooklyn folk. This is Sam Maxwell, and we are here with the Bedford and Sullivan Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners in the Brooklyn Dodgers TV series research process. And uh, I am so thankful that we could uh, come together on this one with uh, author Noel Hines. Uh, he has written the uh, final game at Ebbets Field, uh, as well as the Giants of the Polo Grounds. Uh, he has also uh, written numerous books, uh, generally of the action, uh, espionage, and suspension genre, including Flowers from Berlin, Truman Spy, Murder in Miami, Hostage in Havana, Conspiracy in Kiev, Midnight in Madrid, Countdown in Cairo, and The Enemy Within. Uh, Noel, I love those titles and the way you, you span just across the globe with all of that. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's a great way to travel without having to leave your um, uh, study. Thank you for having me, by the way. Uh, the, uh, Absolutely. Thank uh, you. I, 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 I like to get around the world um, when I can, and uh, usually – a lot of people say, how do you do your research? Well, usually I've done my research before I've actually write a book. Uh, many of the uh, locales that I use are places that I've been. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's sort of drawing on memory and then, uh, you know, working out a story to go with, uh, with the locale and the location. And, of course, it seems like you always come back to your, your hometown of New York City. Uh, so give us a little bit of not only your baseball history, but your overall history as well. Um, my person, where I came from, how I uh, you know, got into the business yes. of writing, et cetera. Um, well, yes. I was born in Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan. My father was a um, true crime writer who also wrote some actual uh, true life espionage books in the 1940s. He had two bestsellers during World War II. One was called Passport to Treason. The other was called Betrayal from the East. But mostly he was a crime writer. He started out um, in 1920 at the age of 17 on the Boston Post uh, as doing street reporting of murders and somehow landed on the Charles Ponzi case when it broke a few weeks after he uh, joined the Boston Post and then uh, somehow managed to snag an interview with Ponzi. Uh, Ponzi, obviously, the originator of the Ponzi scheme, or at least the guy who made it famous in this country. Uh, later on, he covered the Lindbergh case, the great desperados, uh, bandits of the 1930s, Dillinger, Al Carpus, uh, Babyface Nelson, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, and then was a pretty well-known crime contributor to national magazines uh, through the 40s and 50s. And then in the 1960s, I started to pick up on some of the assignments that he uh, did not want anymore because he was uh, had been doing it for 50 years and uh, was feeling his age a little bit. 
So that's how I got into writing. And I was based in New York at the time. And then uh, I wrote for True Detective, Official Detective, uh, a lot of those uh, sort of pulp nonfiction magazines, and then uh, parlayed that into a first novel in 1976. Got very lucky. Uh, got the, my agent sold the movie rights, and uh, basically I've been doing this instead of real work for the last 40-some years. Uh, yeah, and, you know, when you love what you do, uh, it's not work, right? That's, that's what they say. Uh, um, you've also written some screenplays. Is that correct? Um, that's true. Uh, really had more trouble, more, uh, uh, Freudian slip. I nearly said more trouble, um, more success with books <laughs> than screenplays, but I did write a uh, film with Robert Mitchum in 1980, which was called agency it was shot in Montreal. And I did a film called illegal in blue in San Diego in the 1990s. I've written a couple of other scripts that have not been produced uh, in the 1990s, I moved out to um, the West Coast. I live in the Los Angeles area now. I moved here to work on television and write scripts, and uh, the books continued to sell, and television went over to reality, uh, which is in theory not scripted, but we all know it actually is. Uh, and so I've just stayed with books and uh, uh, continue to do spy stories, and then uh, – uh, got back into baseball because I discovered that the Giants of the Polo Grounds, uh, which had been published originally in 1988, was in a lot of people's rare book collections, and there were very few copies around. So uh, about two years ago, I got into doing a revised and expanded edition of that, which brought me into a lot of further study of the Brooklyn team. And uh, I kind of, I know this is, sounds like heretical for a Giants fan, but I kind of fell in love with the, again, with the Ebbetsfield aura that I kind of grew up knowing about and hearing about and having friends talking about. So that's how I then morphed into uh, doing a much shorter book called The Last, uh, The Final Game at Ebbetsfield, which is a collection of Dodger stories and a few other baseball stories also. That's fantastic, and I'm, I'm uh, about to get uh, the Giants of the Polo Grounds as well as the final game of Ebbets Field. Um, so you, you generally you were a, a, a Giants fan growing up, correct? Uh, yes, although um, if your team leaves town when you're 10 years old, that kind of leaves a little bit of a window in your heart for baseball. So... Um, my father and I, the, the first game, first major league game I ever went to, I, as I mentioned, I was a Stan Musial fan. So my father took me in 1956 and 1957 to the Polo Grounds when the Cardinals came into town. So for a while, I was a Cardinal fan after the Giants left town. And eventually, I crossed over uh, and became a Mets fan, which was kind of tricky to do in the 60s. And then over the years have uh, found that a little bit of a difficult thing to sustain. Uh, and uh, I've warmed up on the Yankees over the years and really follow the Yankees more than uh, uh, any other team right now. I know your, your uh, podcast is mostly Brooklyn, so people are probably throwing stuff at the uh, computer screen right now hearing the word Yankees. But come on, it's all <laughs> New York baseball, and it, it's all uh, – 
it's all fascinating. I'm really a New York baseball fan. That's what it really comes down to. Um, so go ahead. Next question. <laughs> no, it, it's, uh, it, it is fascinating, the dichotomy of the New York baseball scene one way or the other. And, of course, the Giants fans and the Dodger fans who felt uh, slighted by both teams I think more so the Dodger fans I've, I've picked up on. I think Willie Mays kind of held a lot of uh, Giants fans uh, there, you know. And, and, and Dodger fans seem to feel a, a real passion against Walter O'Malley because, you know, they were the most they were the most profitable. They were more profitable than the Yankees at the time, whereas the Giants were really suffering from a financial perspective. Um, yes. Um, this, of course, could be uh, the, the subject for a year's worth of podcasts, but uh, it's my opinion that past a certain uh, past a certain point, the O'Malley, as we, that's one of the nicer things we can call him, um, the O'Malley had very, very little interest in staying in New York. I mean, I got really, I did a lot of reading and research and talking to people about the move, capital T, capital M, in 56 and 57. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of the time that George Steinbrenner said he really wanted to re-sign Reggie Jackson and then never offered him a contract. You know, O'Malley says, I really want right, to stay right. in New York, but, but nothing is going to be acceptable. So obviously it's your fault. He kept asking for things that the city, he knew the city was not going to give him. And as far as I can see, he more or less duped Stoneham into going to San Francisco with him. Um, so uh, it's, it's a done deal. You know, it's not just, uh, you know, it's not that we're still bitter or anything like that. Uh, so <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I dare you mention O'Malley. Again. No, right. Exactly. Exactly. Or as the old joke says, you have um, uh, Hitler and O'Malley and, and only, well, what was it? Do you, do you know what I'm uh, referring to? I think there's a third person yes. that I'm, I'm missing. No, you're in, um, you're in an elevator with uh, um, Hitler, O'Malley, and Stalin. There's variations on it. Right. Hitler, O'Malley, and Stalin, <laughs> and you only have two, two bullets. What do you do? You shoot O'Malley twice. There you go. Right, exactly. There you go. And, and I know that there's um, – I, I just want to give a shout-out to, to Rob, uh, O&E Dodgers on Twitter, who uh, was listening to our last podcast uh, with Peter Truck, who was very adamantly uh, against Walter O'Malley. Um, and, and he had some, some words to say, being a, a Dodger fan from Illinois, he has taken to both the, the Brooklyn Dodgers as well as the Los Angeles Dodgers – and there are two sides of the coin for sure. And, and, and the words that, that, you know, he brought up uh, with, without going deep into, into uh, uh, the defense he came to Walter O'Malley, um, uh, it just made me want to, uh, like, realize that, you know, because of all the different emotions on both sides of things, it would be interesting at some point to, to have kind of a debate, a friendly debate, if you will, between uh, both sides of, of, of uh, the, the faction. And, um, you know, what, what I have seen is that a lot of the players uh, had a lot of great things to say about Walter O'Malley, especially Carl Erskine, who uh, was really touched by the way that Walter treated him and, and his family. 
uh, especially uh, one particular story about opening day and taking his son Jimmy around to uh, his, his special needs, taking his son Jimmy around the ballpark and, and missing first pitch because of this. And, and, and you know, it, it, he, he seemed to have been a businessman, but there are elements at times, unfortunately, to a lot of the Brooklyn faithful, not necessarily towards them, that Walter O'Malley did have a big heart. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll go along with that. Uh, that's really a separate issue um, with moving a team that is holding together a community that I think at the time would have been like the fifth largest city in the United States. Um, he may have had a big heart when it uh, suited him and when he felt like uh, opening his heart to people. And I'm not for a moment saying he was an evil man, but he made business decisions which were wonderful for some people, like the entire community of California. They were wonderful for him, which I have to think was his predominant reason for doing them. And they were nearly catastrophic for the borough of Brooklyn and for people who had grown up with the team and, for that matter, many people who worked for the team. Uh, There was almost a systematic purge, if you want to look back at it, of people who were too closely identified with the Brooklyn Dodgers. Gladys Gooding did not move with the team. Happy Felton did not move with the team. Emmett Kelly did not move with the team. The announcer, um, Tex Rickards, did not move with the team. Anything that sort of smacked of Brooklyn was just a little too down and gritty uh, to move to Los Angeles, and so all of that was left behind. Um, That was his decision. Jackie Robinson, sorry, I didn't mean to keep rambling, but Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson felt, according to many of the things that he said and later wrote, that once uh, Branch Rickey left the team, he kind of felt that uh, he was on the outs with the team. And, of course, Robinson, what did they do to him after all those years? They tried to trade him to the Giants in 19, at the end of the 56 season, and he wouldn't go. He went over and became a coffee guy at Chocolate Nuts instead. So, um there you go. I mean, O'Malley, like George Steinbrenner and like a lot of owners, uh, it's a two-way street. Anything you want to say about them is probably at least partially true. It's a great point. And Mets fans, you know, talking about the legacy of, of, the, of the Dodgers and the Giants, uh, Mets fans can certainly attest to not being thrilled with ownership. Uh, you know, it, there seems to be a major dysfunction in New York City, uh, you know, because even the most successful teams, the Rangers, the Giants, and the Yankees, even they seem to have their own set of dysfunction. Uh, you know, you were mentioning Steinbrenner, and Steinbrenner certainly uh, collected uh, world championships during his time, uh, but he wasn't without dysfunction either. Why do you think it is? What do you think leads New York City uh, uh, and their sports teams to have the kind of dysfunction that you don't necessarily see with a team like the San Antonio Spurs, even though we're not necessarily, uh, you know, daily, we, we, we don't daily take in San Antonio Spurs, of course. Um, I'm not sure. Of course, we can't mention, we can't use the word New York 
and the word dysfunction without also mentioning Madison Square Garden, right? I mean, that's a given right. also. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, New York, New York is uh, obviously a unique and wonderful place. Um, the pressure to win is massive in New York. I don't think, you know, there's maybe one or two other cities in the world in which there's such pressure to win. Um, Madrid and Barcelona and soccer, I think, would be parallel situations. But there you're just dealing with one team. So uh, you get a lot of pressure. You get a lot of very competitive people in New York. You get a lot of – you get a huge fan base. And um, you get owners who um, uh, can be a little bit dysfunctional, um, perhaps responding to the pressure of needing to win all the time. But some win and some don't. It's just kind of that simple. I mean, here again, circling back to O'Malley, this is uh, w- one of the most incredible things about moving the Dodgers. Never mind the fact that the attendance was good over in Brooklyn. The Dodgers won every year for 10 years except for two, and that was 1951 and 1950, and they missed by one game in each of those years. Um, so I guess they were out of it in 1954, but you starting in 47, right, right. running ru- running through 56, almost every year, they, they could have won like nine pennants in, in there in a couple of World Series. Uh, and then you take that team, and a year after, two years after they're the world's champions, one year after winning a, a seven, uh, sorry, winning a pennant and going seven games against the Yankees, you move them. <laughs> Come on, you know this, this isn't the Florida Marlins. Go ahead. Right? No. Uh, uh, you, you know, and and we're seeing it. Uh, the the talk about uh, speaking of another Florida team, the Tampa Bay Rays, who have been majorly successful, uh, but. It, have not had nearly the same attendance uh, from from a if we're grading on a curve, if you will, as the Dodgers saw when you're you know referring to the years that you're you're discussing. And mm-hmm. um, what what is what's remarkable? I, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I once went to the Brooklyn Historical Society when they had a Dodger exhibit, and I went around the entire place and uh, took photo after photo until I came to a book with every correspondence between Robert Moses and Walter O'Malley. And I managed to take a photo. Now, I haven't reviewed them. I haven't looked uh, uh, through every single piece, piece of paper that I took a photo of. But I managed to take a photo of every single piece of paper. And I got upstairs, and I was taking a photo of a map of the borough of Brooklyn, formerly a city. And it might have been a map from the time that it was a city. But somebody said to me, oh, but photography is not allowed. And I said, fine by me. I got, you know, to myself, I'm like, I got what I, I, I needed. Um, but, you know, during all those years that, that you speak of, you, you know, he was responding to, to Robert Moses. And, you know, Walter O'Malley was probably at the same time, you know, weighing his options all around. And, it is it is certainly unfortunate that he was negotiating with a man who did not number one seem to have an agenda with the city that wasn't necessarily conducive for the actual citizens of the city. It was all about moving commerce around, basically. That 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 is what I picked up from what Robert Moses's agenda was. 
Um, and he at no point had any heart whatsoever for sports teams, uh, let alone the people who followed those teams. Uh, so it was just it, – it's a perfect storm, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and are you aware of what Moses, Robert Moses wanted to do with Washington Square in Greenwich Village? He wanted to put an, uh, express, I, uh, yeah. an expressway through the middle of Washington Square so people could drive in and out of the city faster. That was right. that. And that, I think that. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh well, yeah. I that was just going to say Moses that. Is, <laughs> that that was Moses's um, approach to the city, getting in and out to the suburbs. Exactly, and I think what where he he hit that roadblock was that. Uh, um, and, and maybe you remember her name, and uh, I can look it up quickly, but there was a, a, a resident of the West Village and Greenwich Village uh, that he ran into uh, in these efforts to destroy Soho and destroy Greenwich Village. Um, um, I'm totally spacing on her name, but basically in the, in the, uh, the 40s and 50s, he's taking care of the outer boroughs, the Bronx, Queens, and Brooklyn, and and driving a lot of these residents who, who he described as slums, but who were happy within their, their confines. Uh, he's driving them out of, of town, basically, or, or to, to other uh, locations of the city uh, during an era that was not as much protest was going on, whereas by, like, 1964, when he's looking to do this in the, in, in the borough of Manhattan, you know, he's coming head-on with an era that, that – is is you know majorly uh, a protest, right? I, I think the the name you were looking for was Jane Jacobs, um, the writer who uh, yes, thank opposed you. Thank his, you. Pla- his his plans for uh, the Washington Square Park. In fact, if anyone's interested, if you Google Jane Jacobs Washington Square Park and Robert Moses, you'll get the whole whole story more accurately than I can recreate it at the time. But uh, you could say that Moses, as he got older, was uh, thinking, let's put it this way, he was thinking in the terms that people thought in in the 1930s and 40s and not really projecting, you know, urban revival of, say, the late 60s, 70s, and and 80s. Uh, He'd probably be shocked at what has happened over the uh, over the years, but getting back to your larger point, Moses against O'Malley, you just knew damn well you were not going to come out with any kind of agreement over anything. Exactly. Although, I mean, what's what's so remarkable is that the spot that Walter O'Malley wanted for that ballpark uh, was clearly a, a, a spot that sports uh, developers. Uh, have craved for years now, and they finally it finally came to fruition. Excuse me, in Barclays Center, which uh, and and you know you you mentioned about talking about dysfunction in Madison Square Garden. For a hot second, Brooklyn was was there, but they have revived themselves a lot quicker than the Knicks have. <laughs> um, yeah, well, <laughs> the Knicks don't get me going. Um, the uh, yeah. The, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm still living in the Dave DeBusher, uh, Jerry Lucas era of the Knicks, Walt Frazier, and, and all of that. It's been all downhill since then. Um, but um, 
Yeah, the, the uh, you know, O'Malley's excuse for not taking land in uh, uh, that area where the Barclays Center is now or in Queens was it's too far from Brooklyn. Brooklyn fans won't, you know, come to Dodger games over there. And then he takes the team 3,000 miles away. I mean, how disingenuous is that? Right, exactly. Uh, uh, rather disingenuous. So, so in writing about the last game uh, of Ebbets Field, um, what what are some of the things within your research of, of Dodger history did did uh, you really appreciate or or uh, were surprised by? Um, not not an awful lot surprised me because I can you know again I was born in. <clears throat> the late 1940s. So I can remember games from Ebbets Field on television. I can remember a lot of people going to games. Um, I think what um, the, the prevailing feeling that I had in, in kind of recreating the last game, which of course was the culmination of the last season, was the incredible intimacy of that park and the team and the borough, um, the way players lived close by, uh, the way the fans were right on top of the game. I mean, almost literally the, as, as anyone who remembers the park can tell you the left field foul line, when it, uh, way down in the left field corner, the fans were so close that the foul line was actually on top of the railing on top of the barrier that kept the fans off the field. So, you know, this, this was the, the genesis of the famous uh, request from the announcer, Tex Rickards, uh, when he would say, would fans down on the left field line please remove their clothing? Uh, because people would drape their clothing on hot days <laughs> over the foul line. And if, if a ball hit on the clothing, it was a ground rule double because if somebody had interfered with play, as opposed to a ball that could conceivably carry him back onto the field and be playable, presumably by Sandy Amoros or uh, Wally Moon or whoever the left fielder would have been for an opposing team. Um, so, I mean, that's how close to the uh, uh, game people were. I remember seeing Carl Erskine on television one time saying, you know, the fans had to love you considering some of the things that they would say to you. Well, yeah, and they were barking at the players sometimes from 20 feet away. So it's hard to conceptualize today just how intimate that ballpark was. It was n- narrow um, aisles, narrow seats. Um, there were all sorts of stunts the fans would play on each other. For example, um, if there were a couple of tourists in a, in a row, uh, watching a game and they ordered hot dogs, people would take a bite out of the hot dog as they pass it down the row to get to them. <laughs> uh, and there was somebody else who insisted that on hot days, the uh, hot dog vendors would actually sweat into the um, baskets they were carrying, which had hot water with the um, uh, hot dogs uh, theoretically continuing to cook, but nothing was really keeping the water hot. So it was it was really a, an incredible in-your-face type of place. The polo grounds, not as much, and Yankee Stadium, certainly not as much in the uh, 
box seats or in the reserve seats. In the bleachers, yes. But, you know, bleachers, they were like, uh, you know, 500 feet away from home plate in some cases in Yankee Stadium. So, um, you know, it was kind of a different world out there. Yeah, it's just such a fascinating place. Obviously, it was built within a city block, and uh, the uh, outfield seats weren't added until the, the crazy enough in the middle of the Depression. Um, but the, the the thing that I, I took away from my uh, legacy perspective, the Mets, was that Fred Wilpon, who is a big Dodgers fan, uh, uh, when, you know, he obviously the facade at City Field was, uh, rep, you know, replicated somewhat to an extent, uh, the facade at Ebbets Field. Um, but they, they put all these nooks and crannies and quirks out there, uh, forgetting that the reason why it was as that in Ebbets Field was because of that intimacy, whereas, you know, you're building on a, on a parking lot at City Field. And I, mm-hmm. I think that's one of, the, one of the follies that they had with trying to recreate all of that. Yeah, it's just kind of um, it's sort of like a, a a genuine facsimile. You know what I mean? Uh, the, uh, the the old parks had those quirks because that's what people had to work with at the time. And some of the quirks in many of the new parks or are just so self conscious uh, that I don't really think they work. Um, but of course that is probably a reaction to all the cookie cutter stadiums uh, that you had in the seventies, you know, like Philadelphia, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. St. Louis, they were, they were all the same. I just, I saw some player who played in that era <laughs> the other day saying, you know, sometimes I'd forget what city we were in because you just didn't have, uh, you stood at home plate and it was, it was, it was the same thing in every stadium. Um, an, an interesting quote that I came across from, uh, I think it was Duke Snyder. It was either Duke Snyder or Johnny Mize was talking about the difference between hitting in the uh, Ebbets Field or hitting in the polo grounds. And it was Snyder, now that I think of it, who said this. He said he loved to hit in Ebbets Field because he always had the feeling that if he got a hold of the ball and put it in the air, no matter which direction it went, there was a good chance that it was going to go out and be a home run. But in the polo grounds and probably in Yankee stadium for Snyder also center field was so far away that it became almost intimidating because even if you bash the thing 440 feet, either mantle or maze was probably going to catch it. So, you know, just the difference from the <laughs> player's perspective. One of the yeah, things, it, if it, I can continue. Is, is, yeah, sorry. Is, Please. One of the other memory things that I came across, in when I was putting together the uh, book, the final game at Ebbets Field, I sent out letters to friends who actually remembered it and remembered um, uh, the ballpark, and I got about a dozen personal memories from people. Uh, for example, George Vesey of the New York Times wrote, uh, contributed a couple pages to the book about being a young uh, the memories he had of Ebbets Field and uh, regretting not having gone back. Um, Joe Magley, Sal Magley's son, uh, wrote me a, a couple of short paragraphs about uh, uh, his father pertaining to the Dodgers and everything. And a 
friend of mine named Wally Exman, who was an uh, editor uh, for many years, lives up in the Cape area now, edited Duke Snyder's book and also a Bobby Thompson book. And he wrote me a memory about taking Duke Snyder to the bookstores in, I guess, the 1980s in New York. And Snyder, because he had published, um, uh, I forget the name, but it was Duke Snyder's recollection of Ebbets Field, and it came out on Father's Day one year. And they're approaching, I guess it was a Barnes and Noble. And Snyder says, why are there all these people out there, uh, you know, standing outside the bookstore? And Wally says, well, they're, they're here to see you. And Snyder was personally really touched about um, all these people 30 years later who turned out to meet him, some of them buying books for their parents and some of them who just wanted to keep aside the uh, uh, keep going the, uh, the the Dodger legacy in New York. Yeah, it, it's really just stayed with a lot of people. I mean, you and I are, of course, on uh, these Facebook groups, and it's every day that people are posting memories uh, as well as just, uh, you know, little tidbits about Dodger history. Uh, and, of course, I should give a shout-out to Gary Mintz, who – runs the New York oh, yeah. Giants Preservation Society. Uh, he uh, has done just a glorious job, and in, in many ways also with the, the San Francisco Giants, who, who do a fantastic job connecting with the, uh, the New York uh, fan base still. Um, they, they've done a wonderful job preserving this history. Uh, uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to take away from what the Dodgers do as well, but there does seem to be more uh, of of a connection with the giant fans uh, than there does with with the connection to Brooklyn. Of course, I you know I I, I know that I, I've been um, I've been told uh, uh, that the the you know of, of course they've worn uh, uh, those blue I believe it was the 1944 uh, 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 sky blue uniforms. Uh, they wear those from time to time in Los Angeles, and of course, they they have plenty of plaques. And uh, even I once got a Don. The only time I've ever I was ever at Dodger Stadium, it was fortuitous because they were giving out without me even knowing. Inadvertently, I went to this game. They were giving out a Don Newcomb bobblehead that day, and uh, I was able to to collect this uh, uh, as my only Dodger game. And um, so I don't want to take away from that, but my sense is the Giants have uh, uh, done a bit more to connect directly with the, the New York fans. And, and not to mention, uh, after the last time they won the World Series, they actually toured the, 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 uh, um, the trophy. Uh, I went to an event where Willie Mays came to speak to uh, uh, all these uh, Giants fans in New York City. Hmm. Um, interesting. The, for many years, the Giants management was not that um uh they didn't they they were trying to get away from the new york uh uh background or at least they they weren't really putting it forward uh but recently they have become more conscious of it and in fact they invited me up to uh to speak a little bit at the uh dugout club which is their club for uh, private for uh season's ticket holders earlier in the year uh, so I brought along a case of several cases, not of beer, but of my book, um, The Giants of the Polo Grounds. And we had a really nice we had a really nice book signing. 
and uh, it was fun to go to uh, the new park. I had never been there before. In fact, I went over Candlestick. I never got to Candlestick the entire time um, that it was in business. Um, in any in any case, there's, ever since the uh, since the Giants, the San Francisco Club has now won a couple World Championships. They're now very interested in including all of those old New York championships in their totals so that they can say that the franchise has won, I believe, eight World Series now instead of just saying the Giants finally won a couple in San Francisco in the last couple of years. But anyway, that's where we are. Well, it's just so funny how quickly times change. You know, they go from San Francisco, uh, a long-suffering San Francisco fan, to winning three out of six seasons. And, uh, yeah, I believe that's because it's 2010 and they, they won in 2014. No, three out of five, excuse me, of course, if I do my math better. Uh, yeah, and, and of course, uh, Brooklyn didn't win until 1955, and then within two years of moving to Los Angeles, they, they win one for uh, L.A. Yes. Um, <laughs> I can remember when that happened. And... Uh, it kind of posed a moral dilemma for Dodger fans who was still back East as to whether to curse the team all the more. Um, it, it really ran the gamut. Some people just dropped the team completely when they moved uh, and other people um, continued to follow them. I can remember going to uh, Dodger games and Giants games at the polo grounds in 1962 and 1963. And let me tell you, they were very, very, very well attended. I think somebody figured out the the Mets drew, I think, something like 922,000 people their first year. And the 22 dates with the Giants and the Dodgers, or I guess it was less than 22, but whatever number of dates it was with the Giants and Dodgers coming in drew, I think, about half of those, half of that attendance. And I know I'm going to miss some names here, but, but of course, Gil Hodges, Duke Snyder, Charlie Neal, Don Zimmer. Uh, I believe Roger Craig, he was a giant, correct? Um, Craig was a pitcher with the Dodgers before he went to the Mets. Dodgers. And uh, okay. later, uh, Craig later, uh, I think, managed the Giants, unless I'm mistaken. Right. That's, so that's, that's, no, you're that's absolutely right. And I, I think that's what I was thinking. Right, so but they they understood the uh, uh, legacy of the nostalgia uh, at the beginning, and the the, the there was I, I forget exactly who said it, but somebody said like you know if we had assembled this team five years uh, you know together five years ago, we would have been pretty damn good. Um, and yes. Greg Prince, I can uh, I, I can give I, I got to give a shout out to Greg Prince of Faith and Fear and Flushing, uh, who once assembled that. Uh, it, it, apparently they lost 120 games and apparently 56 of those games, the New York Mets had the tying run either on base or on deck and lost those, those games. Uh, so it, it, it is remarkable the fine line between how terrible the 1962 Mets were. And obviously, you know, had they only had they won half of the games where they had the tying run either on base or on deck, uh, then we we would not be talking about the most futile team in modern baseball history. Well, I can give you an example from memory. I think it was 1962. 
Uh, one of the other miserable teams in the league that year was the Chicago Cubs. And the Mets were at Wrigley Field going into the bottom of the ninth, and Ernie Banks was scheduled to bat fourth in the bottom of the ninth inning if the Cubs sent four men to the plate. The Mets retire the first two batters, and each time Ralph Kiner says, well, that's what you want to do because the last thing you want to do is bring Ernie Banks to the plate with the tying run on base and the winning run at the plate. So needless to say, the number three guy in the inning gets walked, Ernie Banks comes up and hits a home run. And, of course, Kiner says, well, that's really what you didn't want to do. <laughs> and that's the way the, that's, that's, that, that is the way the Mets would lose games. It was you, you would look at it and you, you, your jaw would be open um, because you just couldn't imagine how many different ways they could do it. And uh, I, I think this is when uh, uh, one of the writers for the New York Times started out a story saying, once again, the Mets have snatched defeat from the jaws of victory. And it was one of those, you know, late inning, <laughs> late inning meltdowns, eighth inning, ninth inning. Uh, I remember a time, I think it was 1963, they, the Mets got a former Dodger, I think his name was Tim Harkness, who was a backup catcher. And he actually hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth at the polo grounds, the Mets won the game by one run. And the crowd followed him to the center field uh, clubhouse and called him out. They'd never seen anything like this before. He'd, he'd swiped the, uh, the, 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 he'd reversed the script. Normally it was the Mets who gave, <laughs> gave up the grand, the grand slam. I remember a, a time uh, when uh, they had a center fielder named Rod Keneal and I think it was a guy named Fred Whitfield of the Cardinals hits him a fly ball with the bases loaded and it had been raining and with the Keneal slips and the ball goes over his head and it's an inside the park grand slam hit by one of the slowest guys in the league because it rolled all the way to the clubhouse wall. So you would just, you'd look at the person next to you and say, did I see that right? Yeah, you did. And to bring it back around, it just reminds you of the Daffiness boys' age, uh, to bring it all the way back to the Dodgers. Uh, Noel, we're yeah. running out of time, but I, I just I just wanted to uh, say I so greatly appreciate you coming on. And uh, before I let you go, it, it, you know, we, we both love to give shameless plugs in the last word. So go ahead with uh, your, your shameless plug, whatever you want the audience to know. Okay, uh, I think anybody who uh, listened to the broadcast would love to go to Amazon. And if you're in uh, Kindle Unlimited, you can read for free either of my books. One of them is called The Giants of the Polo Grounds, and the other is called The Final Game at Ebbets Field. And according to Amazon stats, a lot of people who read once then read the other. There's a little bit of overlapping uh, in the Dodger book because the – stories of the two teams are so intertwined, but I think anybody who loves New York baseball would appreciate either of those two books. So thank you. And thank you uh, again, once more, uh, thanks to Noel Hine for joining us today. And thank you all for listening to the Bedford Sullivan podcast. Uh, this is Sam Maxwell signing off. Take care. Thank you, Sam. Bye. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.